You're watching Battleground. I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre and the host of this show, which airs every Thursday evening at 8pm here on ADH-TV, Australia's fastest growing alternative media network. Tonight, the great pandemic lockdown and the conversation we still need to have about protecting our freedom from the powerful forces who want to take it from us the next time round. I'll be talking to journalist John Stapleton about his new book, Australia Breaks Apart. We'll hear from Meredith Angwin, an American energy expert who says Australia's attempt to run its electricity grid entirely on renewables is absolutely nuts. And uh, I'll be talking to my colleague, James Matthias from the Menzies Research Centre about the nuclear debate. Don't forget the best way to watch Battleground is on the ADH TV app, which you can download on your phone or your smart TV. John Stapleton is an Australian journalist and author, a graduate of Macquarie University with a double major in philosophy and anthropology. Before he went on to a distinguished career in journalism on the Sydney Morning Herald and at The Australian, where he worked as a senior writer for two decades and where he was a colleague of mine. He's the author of five books, Deadly Destination, Terror in Australia, Workers' Paradise Lost, Hideout in the Apocalypse, Catastrophe Australia, and his latest book, Australia Breaks Apart. John, in other words, is someone with an ironclad understanding of what kind of country Australia used to be before the COVID panic began in January 2020. And I can, uh, as, as somebody who used to work with him at The Australian, I can say he's the sort of guy you'd send out, the sort of shoe leather journalist you go out to get the facts, to come back with what actually happened. And so I've invited him today as a reliable witness for how the country changed during the pandemic under emergency rule, which is the topic of his two most recent books, and possibly the ways in which it's changed forever. John, when this thing broke, as you remember, you know, it was just another story, right? At what point did you realise that something was going very badly wrong? There was something very strange about the way this story was unfolding and the way it was being reported. Oh, I think like a lot of people, it took quite some time to really get your head around what was going on and our understanding of it, of course, has changed and is still changing uh, constantly. All the scandals that have come out even in recent months uh, has completely changed what we think about about it, what the uh, reasons behind the whole thing was. I was in uh, Saigon at the time, uh, a city which I'm quite fond of, and uh, all the Westerners there uh, just thought it was a great joke, all the uh, Vietnamese lining up to get their masks. And, you know, if you went to the nightclubs, you had to have your temperature tested. They put something on your forehead to test your temperature, which was just an added bit of sophistication. And, <laughs> and, um, and I got back here and I was so worried. My daughter had just had a baby and am I going to... Inf going to kill my granddaughter and, you know, like everybody else, I was infected with this fear. It was um, a very frightening and disturbing and because we couldn't understand it. Nobody could quite understand what it was. You know, was it Ebola or now everyone just thinks of it as a sort of inflamed type of flu or a cold or, uh, or, <laughs> or nothing, but uh, back then, Everyone thought they were on the edge of death, you know. It was, a, it was AIDS writ large. Anyone could catch it <laughs> through the air, whatever. John, of course, it was a brand new phenomenon. We didn't know what this virus was. People were understandably worried about it. We'd seen the scenes from China, et cetera, et cetera. But surely, uh, in the face of that unknown threat, it, is, it was up to journalists to try and get beneath what was happening and, and hopefully put people's minds at rest. But you write in the book, those old carriers of truths, journalists, failed in their jobs, failed in their heart, held no integrity. You write that your former colleagues ignored all warnings, watched the betrayal of people by ruling elites, watched as the empire built on its own destruction. That's right, isn't it? Why did, I mean, I'm astounded by the way journalists behaved and the lack of curiosity, the lack of scepticism they showed, the lack of commitment to get to the truth. What happened? 
Well, that's true, but I think, uh, you know, journalists like to think of themselves as smarter and, uh, you know, cleverer than everybody else, but uh, that's obviously not the case, and they were just as infected by this sort of panic as everybody else. So I think in the early days a lot of it was well-intentioned, but it set into a kind of... Uh, totalitarian group think or something, you couldn't possibly disagree. And if you were or were disagreeing with them, um, you were some sort of evil person. You know, you were the granny killer or something like this. I, I remember seeing these uh, being online, uh, on Facebook actually, <laughs> dreaded Facebook, with um, um, watching some colleagues and uh, they were all going on about these idiot people who disagreed with lockdowns and and I uh, and I replied well I publish in a magazine I, an online magazine I have a sense of place magazine um, and I published this professor Ramesh Thakur of uh, the Australian National University I uh, I started publishing him I found him in a rather obscure journal but I did what everybody every normal journalist would once have done and that's try to find somebody who disagrees with the narrative um, and the government narrative we it was our job to be sceptical. And if you weren't sceptical in the beginning of journalism, you are after a couple of decades, I can tell you now, you know, because you see them, you know, you know, I remember a, a, a chief of staff who we would both know coming up saying, write a story about this. And I said, this has been announced six times. They're just re-announcing it. This is not a story. And mm. go, Shut up, John, just write it. And it's just like, we, you get extremely sceptical of them, and uh, but there was no scepticism. You were, I think, partly it was the fact that it was a matter of public health, so people genuinely thought that uh, uh, they had to encourage people to comply with lockdown, social distancing, masks. I mean, at the same time, there was an amazing lack of intellectual curiosity, and not just from the journalistic class, but from politicians and bureaucrats and everything else. There were already, in the very early days of this, people from all around the world, from really esteemed institutions, Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Oxford and all the rest of them, some of the leading uh, universities and in the world were all coming out saying there are reasons to doubt this, there are reasons to think. Ramesh Thakur, who is one of the smartest people you, anyone is ever likely to meet, uh, he's a former UN Assistant um, Secretary, uh, has published widely, um, and unlike most academics, is easily accessible mm. and writes really well. Well, jo John, this is the point, isn't it? The, the information was there. Journalists Absolutely could not say it wasn't. And, and in fact, uh, you and I know as people that were, have been in journalism really, well, you know, you since the 70s, me since the early 80s, that it's never been easier for journalists to get the information if they go looking for it because of the internet, right? You know. Oh, I grew up in the days with the paper clips and the librarians that had dedicated their entire careers to putting these uh, clips in, in these files. And it was an honour for them to help you find the old clips for a, for a story. Yeah, uh, and if you, if you wanted to find out somebody's view, you'd have to ring them up or go and knock on their door, right? There was no, there were no shortcuts. And if you wanted the history of it, it from past newspapers, you had to go to the library. Yeah. And a dedicated librarian who saw it as an honour to help uh, would help you. So there's no excuse for journalists to say they weren't aware. They could have been aware. But something strange happened. The mainstream media, as we say, it suddenly became a thing. I mean, we didn't used to think of it quite like that. But suddenly the mainstream media has become a thing during COVID and people don't trust it. And this is my very strong memory of this was quite, quite early on, suddenly realising that I couldn't find out, you know, it used to be that you get the gist of what had happened that day from the evening news and then you could follow it up in the newspapers the next day. I suddenly realised that that wasn't happening. And if I wanted to get down to what was really happening, what the latest research was showing, how people were reacting to that, you had to go online and you had to go to alternative media, right? So the mainstream media lost its position of trust. Well, if you want my theory on it, uh, there's a thing called the Mockingbird um, program, which dates from the CIA's manipulation and control of the media in America decades ago, from the 60s, if uh, memory serves. And uh, there's a very similar system in Australia now where there has been infiltration by government in one way or another to control all the major media outlets. Now, people, uh, there's a journalistic 
commentator on uh, ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, for instance, who's been warning that the command and control um, uh, behaviour of the military and intelligence agencies which serves them so effectively in combat is completely inappropriate when it comes to the media uh, because now, these days, everybody's got a mobile phone. Any Joe Bloggs can set up a, a, a website. Some of the best streamers uh, during these last three years of protest have just been young kids with cameras who have gone out and done what the mainstream was absolutely failing to do. Just hold a camera at the action, not even commentating commenting some of them. Uh, so there's been some absolutely stunning, brilliant footage of police brutality, of um, communal responses, uh, of both joy and tears, a lot of uh, uh, tears, a lot of brutality, like remarkable in a country like Australia, what we've seen. And that, so these, uh, this infiltration and control of the media, whether it was through advertising or implanting personnel onto uh, staff or, or however it worked, it has failed. And, and during the COVID era, of course, it was through tax concessions. So the, the uh, major media organisations were all getting millions of dollars in order to peddle the government message. It's all backfired because now nobody trusts the mainstream media. Nobody believes the word they say. There's a line recently, uh, climate change brought to you by the same people that brought you COVID. <laughs> so, you know, like nobody believes them anymore. So when they have a serious proper message that they want to convey, nobody's listening. They've all gone to uh, this explosion of independent media. Uh, Z uh, media uh, is one of them that's doing particularly well. David Onegh, he's got 60, 70, 80,000 followers or something, which would be the envy of any uh, normal journalist on any newspaper. Uh, Cafe Locked Out, they've done some wonderful work documenting on the ground uh, responses to people. And, uh, and it's produced a whole generation, I might say, of uh, really talented uh, journalists and you know, in the, in the old days, it was in the beginning was the word. Well, these days it might be in the beginning was the podcast, you know, yeah. because this is a generation that don't read books um, uh, and, and barely read, nobody reads newspapers anymore anyway, um, except, you know, ageing old things like you. Mm. But, um, you know, or me, <laughs> I well, can include myself. I mean, you, you, you are right now speaking on Australia's fastest growing alternative media platform and, and, and this is... To a large part, I think, because of the changes that, that COVID brought about, that there is a hunger for people to get other points of view. Look, when you remember the maxim when we were journalists? Uh, we used to say, if it's a choice between a conspiracy theory and a cock-up, go for the cock-up every time, right? And, and that was pretty much right, as I recall in my early days as a journalist. Do you still believe that? Oh, absolutely not. Every conspiracy theory has come true, you know. Yeah. Every single last conspiracy has come true during this era. And there's been... Uh, 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 Tot Media is another one that's come out during this period, uh, has risen up and now has a substantial number of followers. Um, uh, because... Uh, and spectator of, on the more conservative, uh, traditional side of media is is also, I think, uh, seen their numbers rise. Rebel News, you know, the uh, that used to everyone used to pillar in them because he uh, paid uh, serious attention to all the anti-high uh, ma mass immigration uh, rallies, which was seen as terribly racist. Whereas he was just really just doing what a journalist should do, which was get into the thick of things and talk to the protesters and see w what their grievance is. And the, the benefit of that is that if you understand why people are protesting, then you can, as a government, well, you should address their concerns, either instead of cracking down and ignoring them and, um, you know, censoring Facebook. We all know the revelations that have just come out in the past week that uh, the Australian government was very actively censoring um, people, um, 4,000 something requests to uh, uh, Facebook alone, that's just Facebook, um, to take down stuff. So um, there's been some great work by Alex Antic and his Freedom of Information, but also the Twitter files came out, the Australian version of the Twitter files came out more or less concurrently and, uh, and has confirmed that that was exactly the case. As the Twitter files themselves showed, massive amount of government interference on these social media platforms. You have the Australian government perfectly happy to hand over 
Australia's freedom, Australians' freedom of expression to foreign-owned uh, tech companies, uh, and nobody seems to care less. The origins of that, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, did come about during that rebel news period before 2020, when the very uh, vicious crackdowns in Melbourne, particularly on anti-mass migration and anti-Muslim protests, uh, were, were heavily censored on Facebook. The true blue crew and all those sort of things uh, were just pilloried as right wing and racist and so on and so forth. Now, if the government had actually addressed the concerns of those people, which is that they felt overwhelmed by the rate of migration, that they felt like their traditional uh, working class cultures were being eroded or undermined, that they weren't being heard. Um, if they had addressed those concerns, there wouldn't have been that uh, precursor to these uh, vicious assaults on normal protesters who, whether you agree with them or not, have legitimate concerns. Australians, it's hard to get them to protest about anything. It is. But mm. um, they were out there protesting about the, the COVID lockdowns, the, the well, jab mandates. Tell me about that, because you were right in the thick of it. You, you write about it in your, in your book, Australia Breaks Apart. You described uh, how you went to Canberra with the convoy. Uh, very little coverage at all of that. And certainly, I don't think any journalist did what you did and get, got, get into the thick of it, get right there in the middle and find out what people were doing there and, and learn where that whole sentiment came from. Tell us about it. Well, I was just down my local cafe and people were talking there, sorry, about uh, this protest in Canberra and I was lonely as all get out in lockdown for months on end. It never stopped raining. It was an incredibly hermetic, miserable period of my life and a lot of other people's lives. And, uh, you know, if I went left the house for more than two hours, my neighbours were encouraged to dob on me. You uh, couldn't leave your local government area legally. If you got on a train, you had to wear a mask. I had an office. I rented an office in... Um, um, circular key for a while because uh, the only way I could get around that incredible isolation and misery of the period was to go to work and it wasn't illegal to go to work so I could get up at 4am and be in circular key at 6am and uh, and um, and be out of the house and get around um, but um, otherwise you're just stuck there so anyway someone mentions this a demonstration at my local cafe and, um, and I thought, why not? So I got in the car and I went down there. I'd just uh, uh, only recently published a book called Unfolding Catastrophe Australia, which was in the early months of that period. And um, so I just uh, showed up. It was unbelievable. It was um, people had told me the atmosphere was unbelievable. But, you know, you, you, as you went towards Epic, uh, there was a park, uh, uh, the, the showgrounds in the north of Canberra called the Epic uh, Showgrounds, and uh, and um, there was queues of people, you, you were driving like a queue, there was like a tent city that like day by day, hour by hour, just kept expanding out. There ended up to be an estimated more than 200,000 people on that one uh, showground alone. And it was, um, you know, I just drove through, there's people everywhere, there's people cheering and welcoming you on the sides. Um, uh, not a mask in sight, not a QR code in sight. Mm. People, uh, you know, had been locked up. I must say, <laughs> one very funny side of it was that uh, there were uh, a lot of people you know, of a certain age, shall we say, that had just been locked up for quite some time and they were... Uh, Randy is all get out. <laughs> so that was a kind of funny side of it. Uh, and it was also a, a remarkably good-humoured thing. So, you know, I just found, you know, I was directed to a play a bit of empty thing where I could park the car. I'm not set up for, for a camper. I prefer cheap hotels to camping. But anyway, uh, I just parked there and then I grabbed a copy of the book, went down to, uh, got directed down through this. Every hour it just grew and grew down to the, what was a makeshift headquarters got uh, pointed toward, uh, they welcomed me with open arms. I'm the only traditional, you know, old-fashioned journalist they'd come across. And um, uh, there was a sort of provisional um, media desk there of, you know, young, keen, bright young things or vloggers and so on. And uh, I was set up there with a laptop and um, it was funny, really, because... Uh, 
you know, I'd retired in 2010, so yeah, I was happy as Larry to be back in the thick of things, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> it, was, it was, in a way, it was great fun, even though the subject was very serious, and the atmosphere was just electric. It was absolutely joyful, and it was uncanny too, I can tell you now, uh, that, you know, as it kept growing, there were, like, uh, impromptu kitchens grew up, uh, supplies were pouring in. I mean, on the whole, the Canberrans were very sniffy about it all, but a lot of the others were um, donating, and there were mountains of donations. People would pour in with everything from toiletries to food, makeshift kitchens went up. Uh, people would show up whenever something was needed to be done, someone would show up. It was just one of the most remarkable events I have ever covered. I've covered countless demonstrations over the years and I have never covered anything like it. It was just remarkable, that, I have to That's say. the side of Australia which we recognise, people getting together, um, oh, absolutely. taking people they find. But wait a minute, the title of your book, John, Australia Breaks Apart, it raises the question, can it reform? And, and let me tell you, uh, the thing that, that breaks my heart, if you like, is when, when I wrote my book in 2013, The Lucky Culture, I, I made a point in that book that one of the great things about Australia was that you ride in the front of a taxi. It was just part of the camaraderie. It was, it was part of, of saying, well, you know, you respect the driver for what he does. You want to have a conversation with him on an equal level. Now we don't. Now I try from time to time to ride in the front of the cab, but it's, it's awkward. The whole social distancing thing seems to me have done exactly what you say literally in the title of your book, broken Australia apart. Do you feel as gloomy as I do about what we've lost permanently, probably? Oh, you know, in some ways, you know, if you destroy a forest, something else grows up. And there is a kind of sense of that, that um, it really produced a, a whole new generation of journalists um, but yes, I mean, my generation, um, people are so much more insular. Um, you, you know, I had a friend who only had to, uh, uh, and he was out from Europe recently, and all he had to do was say, I'm having a party and every man and his dog would show up. Uh, so, you know, I show up along with what was presumed to be a crowd. There were six of us, you know, and it was just like, it's like that, you know, the uh, old days, it's, it's not just that we're getting a bit older, but it, it's that there, there has been a real change, particularly in that um, uh, older demographic. Uh, people don't trust each other anymore. Um, the kind of suspicion, it's much more insular than it is, than it was. Um, yes, it has changed really profoundly, I think, and, uh, and sadly. And... Uh, um, the loss of faith in mainstream media, the loss of faith in government. I mean, that was one of the great ironies of this whole thing was that the survey showed that faith in uh, and government and media went up in the early days. And I'm just like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> but it did. Mm. <laughs> you know, and um, it's the consequences of that have been very sad, you know. That, uh, mm. uh, anyway, John, thank you. For joining us and thank you for your book. I think what you've done is to contribute to the discussion which we should be having about what went wrong during the COVID panic and how we can avoid it happening again in similar circumstances. So thank you for that. And your book is available on the ADH from the ADH bookstore. We'll have information about that on the screen, I think. But thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's been an honour to be here and very nice to see you again. Thank you. Good old. Thanks, David. Bye. Well, the global revenue of PricewaterhouseCoopers topped 50 US billion last year. That's uh, more than the gross domestic product of Latvia or Bahrain, slightly below Slovenia. Not bad for a company where profit has become a dirty word. PwC Australia's acting chief executive, Kirsten, Kristen Stubbs, last week blamed the recent scandal that ended the career of her former boss on a culture of aggressive marketing that had allowed profit to be placed over purpose. Profit to be placed over purpose. Well, leaving to one side whether the term inappropriate behaviour adequately describes the disclosure of confidential government tax information to clients, Kristin Stubbins' open letter of contrition uh, raises an interesting question. 
If the profit motive is a distraction, what exactly was PwC put on earth to do? The mission uh, to which Stubbins alludes is articulated in PwC's global statement of purpose, and it is to build trust in society and solve important problems. Not make a profit, apparently. Like other corporations that have adopted the wokeonomic business model, PwC has transitioned from a market-driven entity into one that identifies as a not-for-profit, dedicated to nobler causes than delivering a return to investors. Quote, our high standards of ethical behaviour are fundamental to everything we do, the company states in its official corporate documents. Our values define who we are, what we stand for, and how we behave. Hmm. Well, the embarrassment sweeping over PwC's local division is a manifestation of the global crisis in woke capitalism. The claim that there are higher ethical standards at work has been exposed as a sham. No amount of rainbow washing will remove the stain from PwC's reputation in the tax advice scandal. The business case for LGBT plus inclusion was set out in a recent report by PwC. It estimates that the global spending power of LGB plus T, <laughs> LGBT plus consumers is more than $5 trillion. It says it's got an ally marketplace of consumers who identifies fellow travellers with the LGBT plus community, and that is eight to 10 times bigger. It claims that 78% of LGBT plus people and their friends and family and relatives had switched to brands that are known to be LGBT friendly. More than 80% of LGBT plus and non-LGBT plus millennials say an employer's diversity and inclusion policies are an important fact when deciding to go to work for them. That is the PwC's advice on building an LGBT friendly business model. Now, PwC has in, followed its own advice to the letter. Uh, it, last year, it sponsored the Australian LGBTQ Inclusion Conference in Melbourne. Its former CEO, Tom Seymour, used his platform in the conference brochure to boast of PwC's inclusive culture that embraces differences, one that allows us to live our values every day, be ourselves, feel empowered, and to realise and discover all our potential. Well, perhaps this uh, frivolous diversity gibberish did come from the heart and was not just cut and pasted from the countless other statements that assure us of PwC's faithfulness to the official religion of our day. Or perhaps that gibberish meant nothing more than the removable rainbow tattoos, for instance, worn by those who feel the need to show they care. Either way, the cracks are appearing in the woke corporatism business model, highlighted by the consumer backlash that's taken tens of billions of dollars off the value of US shares. And Hauser Bush's market value has fallen by US $27 billion since April the 1st. That was the fateful day that Dylan Mulvaney, a man who identifies as a woman, announced his partnership with Bud Light. Jared Dinges, the beverage analyst at JP Morgan Chase, says this, we believe there's a subset of American consumers who will not drink a Bud Light for the foreseeable future. I suspect he's probably right there. And Anheuser-Busch spokesman said, we want Bud Light customers back, and that's why Bud Light is not going to get involved with political issues moving forward. Well, I think it's probably too late for them. Target in the US has lost $13 billion in market value since May the 17th, when it released its Pride collection of children's clothing, which includes tuck-friendly female swimwear and other products. Other items in the collection include gender-fluid mugs, mm. queer all-year calendars, and books for children aged two to eight, titled Bye Bye Binary, Pride 123, and I'm not a girl. Disney Corporation's share price was already sliding when it was hit by a boycott last February, provoked by its public opposition to a Florida law banning the teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity to children between kindergarten and third grade. But that scandal undoubtedly attributed, however, to the $125 billion loss in Disney's market value in the last 16 months and the decision to sack 7,000 workers in March. It's alarming to me that a company the size of PwC failed to see the cracks in the woke corporate business model 
that have been apparent from the start. The, quote, subset of American consumers who are refusing Bud Light is not as small as they imagine, and neither are their necks necessarily red. Shareholders of Anheuser-Busch, Target and Disney have every right to be angry that their boards did not apply due diligence before partnering with a movement pursuing radical social goals. Trans activists have done a remarkable job of portraying themselves as the bearer of the civil rights torch handed down through the ages. If directors have fulfilled their obligation to guard their shareholders against risk, however, it wouldn't have been hard for them to discover the radical neo-Marxist postmodernist motives of the activists and the threat they pose to our institutions, including the family. Vivek Ramaswamy blew the lid on virtue-seeking capitalism two years ago in his book Woke Inc. Inside the Social Justice Scan. Quote, here's how it works, he wrote. Pretend like you care about something other than profit and power precisely to gain more of each. The mistakes by Anheuser-Busch and Target suggest it is a short-term trick. The public will only put up with hypocrisy for so long, uh, as PwC's tumbling reputation attests. James Mathias is my colleague at the Menzies Research Centre. Uh, he and I have been working on energy policy and more recently on nuclear uh, for some time. Uh, James, uh, glad you could join us here on ADH TV. We should have you on more often. Uh, let's first go, let's talk about that nuclear debate. And a couple of things that happened this week. Number one, I don't know if you saw it, but the ABC's Q&A, that notorious show of theirs, covered nuclear on Monday. They did a poll amongst ABC viewers and it came out 51% to 46% in favour of nuclear power. Now, when the ABC audience is recognising that nuclear power is good for the country, surely the debate's almost won, isn't it? It's probably essentially the first time, Nick, you could say that the ABC audience probably represented mainstream Australia. I didn't see the episode, I did hear about it, and I would have loved to have seen the host's face, or the producer's face for that matter, when the results came back in. You and I have talked about the age issue before, and our polling has shown that uh, people of your age, let's say under 35s, are much less then the minds are much less firmly made up on this, whether for or against. I sense that young people now are recognising that nuclear is, is the best way to reduce emissions, to get to that zero emissions goal, which so many of them want. I think the debate is changing amongst people of your generation. What do you think? Oh, yeah. And at the very least, Nick, people of my generation uh, uh, realise the fact that the nuclear debate was won uh, in the 90s by the, those opposing nuclear power in Australia. And so essentially people of my generation have not even been allowed to have the debate. So at the very least, our minds are, are cognizant of the fact that the technology has changed a lot since the 90s. And now all we're asking for, you know, people of my generation and younger, is the simple ability to have the debate and discussion and not be told by those generations older than us that saw a previous technology and say previous accidents that caused um, their opposition to nuclear. Things have changed and everybody just needs to recognise that. And that's why people of my generation are pushing for more of a debate on this at the moment. The, the nuclear sceptics, people like Energy Minister Chris Bowen, I, I think they, they're running out of arguments, aren't they? It really comes down now, if you listen to him, just about the only argument he really argues with any force is it's too expensive. But that's, uh, I think that's changed. That, uh, his ability to make that claim changed this week dramatically when BHP came out and urged the government to get rid of the moratorium on nuclear power and allow them to do it. I mean, here's the thing, isn't it? If, if, if a private company who's as successful and large as BHP says, well, we want to have a go at it, who's Chris Bowen to say it's too expensive? Well, Nick, Chris Bowen is a small man puffed up on nonsense. Everything he says into this debate is not based on fact. And I'll just make this simple point about things that Chris Bowen says. Chris Bowen looks down the barrel of the camera at the Australian people and he says renewables are the cheapest form of electricity. Well, to that I say this, we've got more renewables in the system than ever before and power prices are higher than they've ever been before. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. And when companies like BHP come out, BHP only ever makes decisions in a commercial fashion. 
they owe that duty of fiduciary care to their shareholders. And so when BHB comes out and makes a bold statement that nuclear should be um, at least accepted in Australia, you know that BHP sit on a rather large reserve and they would rather Australia move transition to this fuel so that they can fuel it whilst also uh, exporting iron ore at, at a large price overseas without any worry. Yeah, that's right. Well, I suppose with, with, with renewables, with wind and solar, if you subsidise them as we are through issuing renewable energy certificates, if we don't make them pay for the extension of the electric grid, which has got to be put in place in order to service their power plants, if we ignore the fact that they have to be backed up two thirds of the time with other forms of energy, then maybe they are cheaper, but it's, 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 it's an argument that doesn't hold water, I don't think, do you? No, not at all. And the whole argument just incenses me with the fact that we can't properly debate what the statistics are. You know, even when you look at deaths as a ratio per um, energy source, um, 150 people's lives are lost per 1,000 uh, terawatt hours of solar panel, uh, solar energy, one one hundred and fifty to four hundred people. When you're talking about rooftop solar, with nuclear power, it's ninety, and that's from a, a really reputable source on on all the statistics about what all energy forms cost to life. And of course, one life lost is always too much. But the fact here in Australia, and not many people remember this, Nick, but just a few years ago under the previous government. They finally solved the problem. They'd been searching, successive governments had been searching for 50 years to just find a facility to store all the nuclear um, waste that we have in this country. Now that's waste collecting from hospitals, from research facilities, from every time your pet goes to the vet and they take an x-ray. Uh, this waste has been sitting in the basement of 130 institutions like hospitals and universities for 60 years. And finally, the previous government found a site in South Australia. They went in there, they got the AEC to conduct a plebiscite. 70% of the people in that community came back and said, we're happy with the plans and we're happy for the waste to go there and we're happy for the economic development to come with it. The Labor Party passed this through the lower house and then sensing the political, political opportunity got with the Greens and blocked it in the Senate and accused the previous government of making a town in South Australia an international waste facility, which it was never going to be. That's the level of debate that the left the Greens, the Labor Party bring to this whole discussion. There's no logic, there's no sense, it's just politics. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's costing the Australian people in their back pockets. Now, the, the space required for wind and solar and transmission lines is just huge, isn't it? I mean, you're up here from your home state of Victoria, where the government there says that if they were to build all the renewable power they think they need to run Victoria on, it would take up 70%, 70% of the farmland. Well, clearly that's nuts, isn't it? And yet nuclear, as, as we know, you could, you could put some small modular reactors in series on Luoyang power station, wouldn't take up any extra room whatsoever and do the whole job better, wouldn't you? <laughs> Again, this, this whole debate is brought down to a nonsense. How many trees do you need to cut down? How much uh, farm soil, you know, good soil that's sequestering carbon from the atmosphere down into the soil to build these massive solar farms, these massive wind farms, all the concrete, all the wires, all the steel, when in actual fact you can just go to a pre-existing site where a coal-fired power station exists and start building there and tap a small modular reactor right into the existing network without cutting down a single tree, without ploughing a single field. I mean, if you're doing a comparison of the two, I know which one I'd take. Do you think that the Victorian opposition have got the, uh, the balls, the guts to, to take this issue on? I mean, to say, well, it's clear we could see a majority even of ABC viewers who are in favour of nuclear will be the ones to champion this. Uh, I, I hope it sticks a wind in their sails, but you have to remember that this was the same opposition that sided with the Andrews government to change the constitution of Victoria to ban unconventional fracking for gas in the Otway and Gippsland basins. So he's hoping, Nick, that they can transition uh, to a policy like this and actually do the bold policy decisions that Peter Dutton has done, say federally, and say that Victoria should establish a nuclear power facility. Great to have you on, James. We'll talk again soon. Absolute pleasure, Nick. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Right. 
Thank you for all the reaction and great comments to the new podcast that I've been putting out, The Grid, Energy Conversation for the Serious. This is where we get down and talk brass tacks about energy policy without dumbing down. There's been far too much dumbing down in this debate so far, and that's how we've ended up in the position we are. Uh, my guest uh, this week on The Grid podcast is M Meredith Angwin. She's, a book, she's the author of a wonderful uh, new book on The Grid, and uh, she'll be joining me from, she joins me from Vermont in the United States to talk about energy policy. Let's just listen to an extract. I put it to uh, uh, Meredith Angwin that Australia hopes to get to zero emissions entirely with renewable energy, with wind, solar, with some battery backup and a bit of hydro. We'd be the first country in the world to do that if we succeed. Let's listen to her reaction. There's a pattern emerges in countries that are, are, have low carbon electricity systems, um, New Zealand being one, Iceland, Ottawa. You know, we, we've been we've been through the places where it's happening. There's something to me seems glaringly obvious. Every one of them has either a lot of a natural resource like hydro or or geothermal or is using it in combination with nuclear. And, and countries like France, which use less hydro, use a lot more nuclear. Now, that's true, isn't it? So no country has got to a low-carbon electricity grid using anything else to do the heavy lifting other than hydro, a little bit of geothermal in some cases, but nuclear being the, the big one. Yes, I mean, uh, there's a really nice book about that um, uh, called A Bright Future, and he basically goes around the world and says, you know, if you want to know how people have actually decarbonized their grid, not the press releases, but the low carbon grids, then you're going to have to be looking at nuclear and hydro. And I guess you could also throw in uh, geothermal in the areas that are uh, good for geothermal. So Australia, our current plan, the current government plan is to get to uh, zero emission grid using a little bit of hydro, the little bit that we have, and then a lot of renewables. The government's target is 82% renewable generation by 2030. That's oh, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be negative, but when things can't happen, they don't happen. And, and, and that, I just feel that's really important to, to keep grounded in that because you hear a lot of, uh, I don't know, uh, Public relations would be, I guess, the kindest way to put it. There are a lot of public relations statements about how we're going to get to this level or that level. And, uh, um, you know, there's a, a, a new uh, blogger out, out there, uh, and he, he, does, uh, he doesn't share his name. And uh, he calls uh, his blog, which is about well, partially about the difficulties of, of using a lot of renewables, he calls it Green Leap Forward in parallel to the great leap forward that the Chinese did, which basically led to nothing but starvation and misery. Hmm. Well, that's a great phrase. I'm going to borrow that. Look, Meredith, <laughs> let, let me go. I want to go over this point again, and I want to emphasise, first of all, that you have no interest in Australian politics, I would think. Um, do you oh, know... Do you know I don't even know who's running for what. I have no clue. I not only she, know interest, I have no clue. You don't. You don't know who the, our prime minister is. You don't know which party is running the government or from what side of politics they would come. Well, I guess I could look it up, and I'm, I have to say that my husband's family is is a traditionally uh, uh, from they're from Cornwall, and they're traditionally involved with mining. And so, you know, we, we actually there are Anguins in Australia. Uh, there are, yeah. I mean, we have I mean, a lot of Cornish people come over and yeah, mine copper and tin. Because of the mines, absolutely. Mm. There was but, a Cornish diaspora all over the world. Well, anyway, what I'm trying to say is, no, I don't know your politics. <laughs> I, I just want to get this absolutely clear because I'm I'm associated with a think tank that's aligned with the Liberal Party, which is. Uh, what you might think of as a conservative or republican party it's now in opposition here we have a labor party or a center left party in power but i want so people would say that i'm i've got a political uh, bit of political baggage but you've got none you're coming at this simply as an as as a scientist as somebody who understands the engineering this you think 
we are kidding ourselves if we can get to 82% renewables and keep the lights on, do you? Yes, I do. I think I think so. I mean, uh, at one point, you know, in my, my book, I, 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 I quote uh, one system where um, uh, I point out that for every uh, uh, megawatt of renewables on a grid, uh, worldwide, the average is you have to have a little over a megawatt of fast-acting uh, backup for it. And so uh, what that means is that the renewables have to have the backup, which means you have to have the gas plants or the hydro. Uh, uh, it, it's not The renewables can go offline so quickly that... that Steam plants are not good backups for renewables. Steam plants like coal and nuclear can load follow very well, but they can't back up the sun drop in the wind very easily. So uh, anyhow, um, yeah, uh, let me say that I, I don't think that it's, it's, it's going to happen. And I, I do fear that if you don't, if you don't, Accept reality and 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 making progress instead of having a goal like, oh, in five years we're going to be a hundred percent renewable. Then what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to plan for uh, progress. I mean, progress is 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 the best you can do. This business of like it's all going to happen in the next six years. That's unrealistic. Well, we, we, is it, we may connect up in 2030 and, and I may tell you that uh, you were wrong and Australia has been the first country in the world that's achieved this, but somehow I think not. But let's go back to your book. On, I'll just read you just an extract from the back cover. Grid insiders know how fragile the grid is becoming. Unfortunately, they have no incentive to solve the problems because near misses increase their profits. So here's the point, and we see this in Australia all the time insiders people you talk to in the in, in in the energy sector uh whether they're you know pushing renewables or or whether they're, they're steady old-fashioned chaps who do coal and gas they all know that the system is is very shaky that the grid is going to struggle even more than it has once we start to withdraw coal on the schedule which has been outlined but nobody says so right and this is because you say that they're basically making money anyway. Well, yes. Now, uh, I gather that in Australia, you have a market system, an auction system, similar to the ones we have here. Yeah. And um, the uh, and, and and yours got so messed up that they shut it down for a few days, which was kind of interesting. Which yeah. shows that you don't need the auction system because. All you need is the balancing authority and the grid keeps going, uh, the people who are actually dispatching plants to meet load. But at any rate, uh, the way the auction systems work, uh, there's a clearing price. And so uh, uh, they're very odd. They're not an auction in the sense that we use it going for five, going for ten. If you have like uh, four plants on the grid, imagine a grid with four plants, and one of them can make power at uh, five cents per kilowatt hour, one can make power at 10 cents, one can make power at 15 cents, and one can make power at 20 cents, okay? So the, if the grid operator says, gosh, we have a lot of demand, and uh, we, we're going to have to get all you plants on here, uh, then it will, it will, the grid operator will then say, and the 20 cent plant is setting the clearing price. All plants get 20 cents. Okay. Mm. If there's less demand on the grid, then perhaps the 20 cent plant doesn't have to go on. And so only the 5, 10, and 15 cent plants go on. And then the grid operator says, okay, the 15 cent plant has set the clearing price. And now all of you are getting 15 cents per kilowatt hour. So, you see, the, the, the top price, that's the clearing price. Now, if you were a plant, let's say you're just an ordinary little plant, maybe you're the 10 cent plant. Do you want the grid to be stressed so they put on expensive plants or do you want it to be nice and easygoing so that maybe you're setting the clearing price? You want it to be stressed. 
So that they're putting on any expensive plants they can get their little hands on. That's how uh, the Texas grid went up to, uh, I, I think it was $9 per kilowatt hour for a while, $9,000 uh, per uh, megawatt hour. Yeah. Yeah, we see crazy prices like that here from time to time. But those stress points in the day, principally the late afternoon, for obvious reasons. So what you're saying is if, if I'm running, a, you know, I've got a small... Well, let's say I've got a large um, solar uh, plant uh, running in, um, in in New South Wales here and I've got the potential to put um, you know, maybe 250 uh, megawatts into, into the system if I want to, but I might choose not to, right? I might choose to put a bit less in because I want the... I want, actually want to engineer a bit of a shortage or a bit of a, 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 a excess demand over supply so that the price goes up. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, you would want to. I would say that in general, the uh, people do it. <laughs> but supposedly, the grid, each grid actually has, not just supposedly, and somebody, a group called an independent market monitors that are supposed to be uh, watching for this and reporting it to the grid operator and that you could get fined or something if you do it. But, uh, my experience is that they, they're not very effective, that I think there is uh, more manipulation going on than they report. Um, but, uh, and, and it's certainly was the case back in California in 2001. And uh, when we had rolling blackouts, it was basically there were plants that all of a sudden were having uh, uh, outages for maintenance. Who knew? You know, uh, oddly enough, the price kept going up as they went out. If you own four plants and you can take one off for maintenance at a time when the grid is stressed, the other three are going to make a lot of money and you're not going to have to buy gas for that plant that's offline. Meredith Angwin there talking to me on The Grid, our new podcast, and you can listen to or watch the whole interview. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Some great insights from Meredith. That's on The Grid, which you can download from your local podcast provider, Apple, Spotify, whatever, or watch on the ADH app. Thank you for uh, the comments on that. Um, the many people have written in to say they actually enjoyed last week's interview with A.D. Patterson. Uh, I'm going to be doing more of these because, because of the demand. So please keep, please keep your reactions coming. I'd love to hear what you think of them. That's just about it for this evening on Battleground on ADH TV. Uh, you can email me, Nick, doc, Nick Cater, sorry, Nick Cater at ADH.TV ADH with your comments. I'm sure Charlie will put that up on the screen so you won't have to take my garbled reading of my own email address. You can uh, email me anytime you like and I'll run you the best of your comments next week, next week on my Your Say section. That's all for this evening. Thanks to the team at ADH TV for their help. Thanks to my team at Menzies Research Centre for the, the support with research. Most of all, though, thank you for watching. Good night.